All right, we're back. We got the roundup. We got the roundup. Santi, you're uh, Cycle City today, huh? I am. I love cycling. Uh, so I'm doing some training in high altitude and uh, living the life, man. I, when you see me smiling like this is for two reasons. One, obviously crypto. Two, cycling or running. Just doing nice. sports. Just, just, yeah, I can tell you got that rider's high going right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot of like seen and legally blind. It's like endorphins make you happy. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that if if I'm not doing exercise on the daily, I mean I do rest once a week, um, but it's uh, it's you know I go crazy when I don't do it. Yeah, I get so much out of it. How many how many miles are you cycling or kilometers? I should say for you Europeans. Um, today I cycled 130k. Um, I'm in the Dolomites, so did uh, a lot of climbing. Yesterday I did 105k. So 130. Is that that's a uh, what seventy miles, eighty miles? That's like seventy-five miles, yeah, give or take. Yeah. So seventy between sixty, seventy, eighty miles each day. Now, not every day is like really long, but when I'm here, I'm not here for many days. But just the the amount of cycling, and it's like the most beautiful mountain range in the world. And I've been to like I've been to the Himalayas, I've been to all uh, mountain ranges everywhere, really, South America, North America, every continent I've I've visited and climbed mountains. I think the Dolomites are the most underrated, even more beautiful than the Alps. Uh, just incredible scenery. <clears throat> That's gorgeous, man. If, if anyone ever gets a chance to come up here, you know, you, easy access and it is unreal. Love it. Well, you've yeah. been uh, paying attention to a uh, little big week for Bitcoin, huh? <laughs> Very big week. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to cover in this episode. Of course, the ETF um, approval seems closer and closer, uh, particularly given the ruling with Grayscale. We'll talk about that. Um, related on the regulatory side, I mean, crypto just keeps winning. There's a second big, um, you know, the, the Uniswap paradigm kind of dismissal yeah. class action where they're trying to be pinned on on trading of these like, quote unquote, you know, shit coins. But uh, the court dismissed that. So that's a big win. We'll talk about that as well. Um, we won't delve too much into that because we're having a regulatory bot next week. So we'll save a lot of meat for more uh credentialized and competent people to comment on, on this stuff. But we'll, we'll touch on it. And then, of course, uh, <clears throat> related to Coinbase, I mean, you were the one that brought this to my attention. There's a great, um, <clears throat> you know, Brian Armstrong has been more vocal these days. And I think he put yep. out a, kind of a request of, hey, things I, I want to be seen built. And so we'll comment a lot on that. I think that'll be the substance of the episode. Does that nice. sound good to you? Yeah, you know? that's great. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Grayscale first. So uh, let, me, let me just tee this up maybe a little bit. So actually the first, so this... Um, what is it? Yesterday on Wednesday, the uh, Grayscale won a big thing. Won a big thing in the courts against the SEC related to their um, uh, to their ETP or ET, uh, ETF. Um, and the I think just before getting into like what that ruling means and and what actually happened, just to tee this up a little bit. For I mean, since I've been in crypto, people have been basically applying for Bitcoin ETFs, and I think the first one was the Winklevoss twins actually back in twenty. Remember when that was 2013 or 2014? I want to say I think it was, it was 10 super years early. ago. Yeah, I think yeah. about 10 years ago. Uh, it's been more than 10 years since the Winklevoss twins applied for the first Bitcoin ETF, and since then there've been a number of firms, you know, Arc, uh, Van Eck, uh, you know, Bitwise, um, Grayscale, many, many times, and Arc, Blackrock too. Well, and then obviously the most major. recent one was yeah. I think when <laughs> when we started to realize that like this actually could 
go move forward and there actually could be a BlackRock ETF uh, or a Bitcoin ETF is when the June BlackRock ETF filing, right? Because June BlackRock has filed for, you know, 550, 600 ETFs. And I think they've only lost one of those. So that was kind of the signal to the market. And we talked about this back in the June, a June roundup, that that was kind of the signal that they, they knew something was coming, right? They knew something was going to happen. So uh, what happened in this Grayscale case is that, um, uh, let me just kind of tee this up. There are two folks with great threads. As always, Jake Travinsky who's going to join us next week and then uh, uh, Marissa from Blockchain Association. So I'm just going to read some of Marissa's thread and kind of quote from this. So to set the stage, Grayscale was not the first, like we just talked about, to seek approval of a, a spot Bitcoin ETP. Several others have. Um, the SEC has denied all of them. But importantly, and this will become important later, they have approved two Bitcoin futures. Um Evidence demonstrates that there is a 99.9% correlation between spot and futures market prices. So for this denial uh, of a Bitcoin ETF to be proper, right, because they've approved the futures, but they haven't approved the spot, the SEC must have a reasonable and coherent explanation for the inconsistent results for why they're approving Bitcoin futures, but uh, ETPs, but not Bitcoin spot. Um, otherwise, they acted arbitrarily, right, and uh, and opinionated, which this is not supposed to be you know, an opinion; it's supposed to go off the law. And so, in denying these pro- uh, proposals, the SEC found the products were quote not designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. So, what does that actually mean? What it means is that they're saying that the size of the market was insufficient to prevent pro- uh, fraud. So, they're saying the market is not big enough to prevent fraud in the market. So, to remedy this, the SEC uh, required a surveillance uh, sharing agreement with a, re- a related and regulated market of significant size. Um, and according to the SEC, every spot Bitcoin ETP proposal so far has failed to satisfy this significant market test. So uh, that is kind of what the the uh, the court was looking for. The court was looking for whether the SEC coherently and reasonably explained why it treated spot and futures ETP approvals differently. Um, that is what they lost. They found that uh, I think there were two kind of attack vectors in the courts here. If I was, uh, if I'm the grayscale lawyers, I think the two attack vectors they were going after were one: uh, the SEC never explained why grayscale owning Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin futures impacted CME's ability to detect fraud. Uh, it claimed there was a difference, but the SEC kind of failed to back that up. They claimed it, and then when challenged, they couldn't back that up. And then grayscale provided evidence that fraud in the spot market would. Pre- present identical problems in the spot in the futures ETP, right? So if there's fraud in one market, because there's this 99.9% correlation, there's going to be fraud in both markets. And uh, the SEC basically, again, they didn't really dispute that. They basically just said that the correlation analysis uh, had insufficient evidence without explaining it, though. And that's not enough for the court. So the court agreed with Grayscale here. Um, They said the SEC's unexplained discounting of the relationship between the two markets, so the spot and the futures markets, falls short of the standard for reasoned decision-making. So that was the first attack vector. Second attack vector, uh, the SEC failed to explain how the proposed ETP would be the pr- uh, predominant influence on the price of Bitcoin futures traded on the, on the CME. Uh, so the SEC's attempt to kind of connect the value of Grayscale's assets to impacting the price on CME was unreasonable. And again, the court found that despite uh, Grayscale's demonstration to the contrary, if the SEC thought Grayscale would be the predominant influence on the CME's market, the SEC kind of failed to sufficiently explain that conclusion. So bottom line, I know it's kind of a long tangent here. The SEC, uh, the court found that the SEC failed to treat 
like cases, uh, the two cases alike. It concluded that CME was a large futures market as, as it approved the futures ETP, but then failed to explain why the reasoning does not apply to grayscale. And in the absence of a coherent explanation, this unlikely regulatory, uh, unlike regulatory treatment of like products is unlawful. So boom, Grayscale mm-hmm. wins. Would love to hear your, I mean, we've been at this for a decade. Would love to hear yeah. just like, yeah, what you kind of felt in this moment here. Well, I actually want to ask you first, which is, and I'm cheating here. Um, where, where can the path for an ETF approval be further derailed? Right. Because I think a lot of people would, would have looked at this and said, clear runway. It's imminent. The, mm, yeah. the crypto prices, of course, reacted very positively on this news. Uh, and, then, and then it dipped some. But um, certainly Bitcoin was up, I think, up to 7% uh, almost immediately, like in a few hours. And then, and then other assets kind of rallied accordingly. Um, but Bitcoin was leading the chart. So the uh, question for you is, what else at this point can be a roadblock <clears throat> for the approval of an ETF? Mm, yeah, good question. So, uh, mo- so moving forward here, the ball the ball is in the SEC's court, right? And a lot of it depends on whether or not Gary Gary Gensler wants to fight or fold. Um, so the decision whether to appeal uh, this is my non legal brain here working. This is just my understanding. The decision of whether to appeal or not to to appeal, they have forty five days to make that decision. If they appeal. Um, so if Gary says, look, I don't agree with the courts here, I'm going to appeal, uh, the order will be stayed until a decision is made on that appeal. However, in that time, there are several other Bitcoin ETFs that they have to make to, uh, that, that are going to be filed, right? ARK and Bitwise and BlackRock and folks like that. And actually, I think ARK is the first one that's going to come, come due. So ARK filed back in, I think it was May, maybe April or May. Um, you have 240 days if you're the SEC to make a call on that. So what is 240 days after that? I think that's like January, right? I think they have a, Jan- a deadline of January 2024. Uh, so that's that's one thing is like they could they could appeal. That's they could fight this. The other thing is that they could actually not fight this, but come up with new rationale, uh, <clears throat> new rationale to get Grayscale to, which would then cause you know Grayscale to sue them again, and we go down this path. So so they mm-hmm. can't use the argument of, hey, this is not a market of sufficient size to prevent ma- ma- manipulation. Can't use that, but they could try to find something new, and, and then we'd go down this path again. Grayscale would fight them again. Now there's a third. There's a third thing, which is, um, I think they could they could actually probably rescind the futures ETP, but I don't. But I don't see them doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it will certainly be interesting. And so basically, what you're saying, because a lot of commentators said, hey, you know, we could have an ETF relatively soon. There's one camp that said that. There's another one that said, like you were saying just now, which is most likely Q4, Q1. Um, but, uh, you know, the market is a discounting mechanism, and they, they all sort of assume it's an ETF. And uh, we'll get approved within the next, you know, weeks to six months, if you will. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, it does sound like it's, uh, you know, the SEC can, can draw this out. Uh, you know, they certainly have done that in the Ripple case, right? They, they've they said that uh, they're going to appeal it, I believe. Um, and so, um, yeah, that would be interesting to, to see. The, the the thing that I also looked at was, and we've talked about in this pod, was the, the discount of Grayscale <clears throat> um, products compressed pretty dramatically. You know, th- this is GBTC in particular, which is the Bitcoin trust. Um, the discount at one point reached, you know, this is like peak three arrows, 
um, bankruptcy um, and, and blow up because they were involved heavily in that carry trade. I mean, the, the discount on this went all the way to like 50% or so, 47%. Uh, and now it's traded, you know, I think there's still a discount. Discount's like 17% or so, 15%. Um, <clears throat> so I'm looking at that and that's that's yeah. uh, fairly interesting that that is compressed, but it's still not a pair. You know, you could argue that these closed end <clears throat> kind of mutual funds don't ever trade at par, but there's still a very big, if you're like a ARB hedge fund out there, I'm sure you're looking at this and- you know, there's still a fair amount of room here between 17, 15%. I think people just have, I think people have PTSD. I think people have just yeah. gotten crushed on that trade for so many years that, uh, it's the widow trade. Exactly. It's famously called. There's, yeah. there's two very famous trades in one, the kimchi trade, which is like, yeah. you know, the, the, the discounting Korea, uh, and then this widow trade, which has claimed the lives of many. Yeah. Um, okay. And so where, where are you standing here? Are you, Optimistic think, in the range of outcomes. How do you think this shakes out? Uh, cautiously optimistic, I would say. I think they're uh, for the first. So if if BlackRock had not filed, I think BlackRock people can't sleep on that. And you know that filing back in June is super important. I think if BlackRock wasn't here, uh, Gary Gary goes to the mats and he, he and he fights this. I think now though there is political pressure on the SEC to approve this spot Bitcoin ETF, and this mm-hmm. is no longer just about Grayscale. It is about all of TradFi, and I think. I think this was Jake Travinsky who, who put this really well. All of TradFi is now ready for a Bitcoin ETF. Um, and if you actually look at um, uh, BlackRock, like BlackRock being in the game now, they don't, they don't file and not get this thing passed through. And if you think about mm-hmm. uh, Larry Fink, right, who runs BlackRock, his influence on DC, right? Con- think, think about it. He was considered for yeah. Treasury Secretary in 2016. Uh, he, he, I mean, I feel like half the testimonies of like finance CEOs or think right Testi- testifying about COVID-19 relief yeah. about financial regulation about economic issues I mean the, the Fed literally hired BlackRock in 2020 to purchase billions of bonds and securities to stable stabilize the markets during the pandemic like they literally called on BlackRock to do that um, and mm-hmm. I right, he serves on the New York Federal Reserve Board um, and I've seen like you've seen him be able to pressure he pressured like He's pressured the biggest companies in the world, and I think he's pressured some of the biggest uh, pol- geopolitical <laughs> leaders in the world as well. Um, yeah, whether that's on yeah. ESG, ESG stuff or lobbying efforts, or uh, you know, when he I remember last year he pressured uh, Exxon Mobil to invest more in clean energy through through all the shareholder mm-hmm. votes that they have, and which yeah. So I think you can't underestimate that. Yeah, I'm in your camp too. I mean, I, I think f- like. The decision for an ETF does not compute in my investment process, although I think it is very important for the legitimacy of the industry. And and I think we've already in some capacity won, as you said, because because BlackRock is in the game. And I think that alone, to me, is more perhaps even more important than the approval or not. Um I think the approval will come at some point. I'm not playing the game of timing. I just think that this asset class, moments like those where you see a participant like BlackRock come in the game is is a win already for the industry. And so I'm not waiting or playing whether or speculating whether it's going to happen in a week or six months time or a year. I certainly think like you that it can be a more drawn out process. And so I kind of in in a range of probabilities. I think that that might be the case. Yeah. Um, here's so, why. Here, here's here's why it might be actually even fast. Here would be like if I was being 
So I said cautiously optimistic. If I was being really optimistic, so when people talk about the 240-day approval for, for ETFs, it's actually not a 240-day approval. It's a 240-day process that's split into four stages. So there's a 45-day initial review window, which then they can approve or not approve. Usually what happens though is they extend it to a second 45-day initial review window, which can then be extended again to a 90-day period, which is called the order instituting uh, instituting proceedings, which can then be extended to a final 60-day period after which the SEC must publish its decision. So if I'm being as optimistic as humanly possible, I mean, you can approve these things quicker than 240 days. You, you don't have to yeah. wait for that. So, and I'm, I just pulled up, there's a, so I mentioned ARC. There's ARC, Bitwise, the Invesco Galaxy Bitcoin Trust, iShares mm-hmm. Bitcoin Trust, Vanek Bitcoin Trust, Wisdom Tree Bitcoin Trust, the Wise Origin Bitcoin Trust, which is Fidelity, and uh, the Valkyrie Bitcoin Fund. So those are yeah. all set to, if you extend the 240-day window out, those are all, uh, ARC is January 2024. The rest of them are March 2024. So look, by the end of Q1, we could have, you know, eight eight to, what is it? Eight to nine ET- Bitcoin ETFs in the market. Yeah. Now, importantly, Europe already has these, is my understanding. Canada has one or two of these, I believe. Yeah, but who cares about Canada? No, no. What, what I'm trying to say is, these already exist outside. Right. And I right. think there's that one that covered Jacoby Asset Management in, in Holland yeah. or something. That's right. And so that my point is there has been historic like if you study history, like the gold and I've said it before, the gold ETF approval, there's a time where the US resisted that. And then it got approved in Europe and then it came to the US. And so I I think again, we're following the same pattern here. History is rhyming. <clears throat> I guess like a listener might be wondering, like, what's the point of all this? Like, why are we talking about the ETF and you know, <clears throat> beyond, and I think this is a good segue into the second piece of regulatory action, the, the Uniswap thing, which is <clears throat> you always got to wonder, there has been, I think at this point, more harm done by not approving an ETF than there has been presumably any claim that you can think of what the harm would be of having a crypto ETF. And I'll tell you why. Grayscale, again, this this idea of a discount. I mean, that, that's a huge amount of losses for people, right? Whether you, it's, it's on paper or not, but it is trap liquidity. And this discount has been, has been very impactful for people that have invested, um, whereas an ETF wouldn't, wouldn't have that issue. And so I think that's, that's the thing that if I'm some of the more vocal members of Congress here that, are, that have continued to say along these cases, I think the common denominator has been it is up to Congress to come up with rules because regulatory by enforcement and the lack of clarity has been very cost prohibitively costly for crypto startups. Like it is, it has stifled innovation, but more importantly, it has harmed the consumer. Right? You could argue, like, what's the harm of like a, an airdrop? Like, there's so many that financial inclusion has been impacted on a number of dimensions, and particularly like the the amount of like you could argue the Coinbase stock being you know hit pretty hard after the sec sued them but more so the, the just the discount itself in these grayscale products is is i think the one of the things that if i'm a member of congress i'd be pointing to that and say it is it is fundamentally important that we have an etf because otherwise you have these things that are harming the consumer and everything in financial regulation and you tell me if you think otherwise should be centered on creating fair and efficient markets primarily fair and act and like including like financial inclusion and i think at this point i mean the evidence is just so clear that 
uh, by not having an ETF, there is a lot of harm being done. So that's the thing that I think is a good segue into the second piece of regulatory action that we highlighted, unless you want to talk about. I actually have one more thing. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, this is something that we talked. All right. So ETFs, let's think about what this could do to the market, right? An ET, and you can, I think you, you, you brought up gold in Europe and then the U S and I think that's an apt comparison. And you know, if you, you and I, like you, we are not impacted by an ETF necessarily because we can buy Bitcoin, you know, and self-custody it or keep it on Coinbase or something like that. But if you're a large institution, there are like five reasons an ETF like really impacts you, right? You, you are maybe four main ones, like enhanced liquidity, a lot of institutions, let's say you're trying to deploy $2 billion into, into Bitcoin. It's very tough to do that. You have to like get an OTC, you have to get an, like a crypto native OTC desk and implement it like, like that. Uh, the ETF is going to bring enhanced liquidity. It's going to re- reduce the need for physical holdings. So even though you and I are comfortable holding Bitcoin and self-custody uh, in the same way that people didn't want to hold gold physically, uh, people don't want to hold Bitcoin. They don't want to deal with that. And so yeah. I think it reduces the need for the physical holdings. It does increase price transparency uh, and price yeah, discovery, sure. which institutions want. And then, uh, the potential for manipula- manipulation in a market. Uh, this just increases the size of the market and it bring and brings like more regulatory scrutiny to the yeah. Bitcoin markets, which then I think draws more institutions in as Absolutely. they are less scared to to allocate to that. So my yeah. question on the back of all of that is, um, I remember at one point we were talking. You had very little, maybe no Bitcoin exposure. Uh, I think a couple of months ago you started actually, and again, not financial advice. I, we don't have, you know, no. not financial advice, all that stuff. Like, I think you started buying Bitcoin again for the first time earlier this year. What is your current like thinking around your personal exposure to Bitcoin, especially relative to to Ethereum? I haven't changed the allocation since back then. Uh, I do have some exposure, obviously. Uh, it is meaningfully less than other crypto assets. Uh, I mean, my strategy is primarily in the private market, which is investing in, in early stage startups, but I do have core holdings, liquid holdings. Um, I do think that, so I haven't like changed, I haven't added to the position. Um, but I do think that, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting setup. And I want to go back to the kind of things that you listed out just now. When you think about what this does, we had a another podcast that is coming out. Um, where we were talking about the impact that it will have on large crypto funds that basically track the index and have, you know, if you're a billion plus fund, a lot of that is, you know, held in in a lot of the majors in order to deploy that size. And so, you know, historically, the industry is allocated, the the investors have allocated to the industry by investing in, in venture funds, hedge funds, and, and grayscale products, right? Having an ETF has, I think, an impact, you could argue, on large-scale funds. Um, also has an impact on grayscale. It doesn't convert to an ETF because the fees are very, very high. I mean, it's charging like a 1% fee or so, <clears throat> whereas an ETF charges basis points. I mean, like an order of magnitude less. Um, and so, you know, into the idea of price discovery and liquidity, like if there's any inefficiency in how the ETF is traded, you can, there is going to be plenty of people arbing the physical versus the ETF. Like, like that, that's going to happen. And so it just creates tighter, <clears throat> tighter markets. Um, if you're, this is not tax advice, but I think the, <clears throat> a lot of folks invest, even crypto natives historically have allocated to grayscale products through like a 
tax advantage account, like a yeah. Roth RIA or an RIA, which is when you think about the ETF, I mean, that also becomes a possibility here, which is, you know, it's, it's fairly advantageous. Now you should go talk to your lawyer, you know, your accountant and whatnot, but having an ETF <clears throat> is very kind of, an, you know, just more possibilities of getting access and exposure to particularly Bitcoin in this case. Um, and have some sort of, you know, you know, have a number of strategies at your ability, you you know, options market, you know, you could borrow against that, you could do it in a cost effective manner. Right. And so I think, uh, one of the things that is going to be interesting is how Coinbase micro strategy, Hmm. which has a huge number of Bitcoin holdings, like how all these different things that have been proxies for getting access to crypto um, change as a result of, of just a pure ETF approval and hmm. access. Do you, do you think they get, do you think they're helped because it expands the market or do you think they get hurt because uh, they've, like, you know, Coinbase is acting as a proxy for someone who wants to go long Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but doesn't really want to, you know, maybe buy, buy the underlying. Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the other one I didn't mention was miners. Um, yeah. And I think miners probably get hit the hardest because mining has just been a terrible business. Like you, you can, you would rather own just, I mean, I, in my opinion, every miner that I've looked at for a long time, I just never get my arms around why it would outperform the underlying. And I think similar dynamic happens in the oil and, market, oil and gas market, like exploration and drilling and exploration is a very tough business. You'd rather own like oil, I guess, or uranium exploration. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, the the mining aspect of it, mi- miners I think have a struggle challenge business, um, and so maybe a lot of the capital flow that has invested in those transitions to just the ETF um, to track the underlying performance here of Bitcoin versus an operator in this in the system. MicroStrategy is a bit different if you one have some sort of um, inclination to and believe that and give any credit to like their data business uh and i think they they mentioned that they want to make a big play and you know blockchains are data rich and they they historically like pivoted from and the word like microstrategy over the years like even the 90s like has been very much like a data business and like creating and servicing insights and processing like unstructured data and whatnot and it wasn't being a mobile and i reinvented its business and like but and now it's saying the same for crypto and like it's going to like come up with a product that, you know, is processing all this crypto, like all this blockchain data and like surface insights. So if you give any credit for that, I mean, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's also leverage, right? I mean, they have like huge amounts of borrowings um, to, to yeah. purchase these Bitcoins. So so I don't know. I mean, the maybe a question for you as you are in the U.S., like where would you. Would you, in, in the realm of possibility, by the way, they're not mutually exclusive. If you had $100 to invest from scratch and you could, and the options are going buying Bitcoin and storing it yourself in a wallet, <clears throat> buying the ETF, or some of these other options, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, Miners, GBTC, mm. like how would you allocate that $100? <clears throat> For me personally, I'm just buying. I'm buying, I'm buying Bitcoin and Coinbase probably. Like those are my two. 
I'm buying Bitcoin and Coinbase. I because I think something like GBTC. I I don't. I I'm not. I'm not a trader. I don't want to. When I think about like the ARB, that is a trade. Like that is someone thinking about the trading That's strategy trade, there. Yeah. And I don't. I don't have the mental bandwidth. I don't want to be a trader. It like I want to buy something and forget about it for ten years. And I want to just like I. That is how I invest. I don't. I probably leave money on the table, but I don't like the mental bandwidth of trying to think through different trades. I like just, mm-hmm. and I like having 99% of my mental bandwidth go towards building blockworks. So the little bit of mental bandwidth I spend on investing, I like buying things that I want to hold for 10 years. And right now that is Bitcoin and Coinbase. Um, yeah. And the thing I'm thinking you about- You want to right buy now, the ETF? Well, uh, I mean, why buy the ETF when you could buy the the underlying? Well, actually, I mean, that's a key. I'm curious Roth how GLD is done for its gold. Yeah, you could buy in your Roth. I mean, like, that, that, and that's what I'm saying. You're in the US. And so I think you can't do that with physical Bitcoin, can you? No, but you can't put that much in a Roth IRA, anyways. I think it's. Well, well that's what I'm saying. But, but you can. Yeah, I guess you know, if you had. If you, Roth IRA. Yeah, I guess I, I guess you would max out your allocation <laughs> there. And then. That's yeah, a good question. Definitely not I mean, miners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not buying miners. Um, uh, no. Yeah, but uh, so it's interesting because I think the most dangerous thing in crypto from an allocating perspective is like thinking that this time will be different, right? And if you look at all the last cycles, um, you know, Bitcoin leads, right? Bitcoin leads, mm-hmm. flow, that capital flows into ETH. That yeah. excess capital in ETH flows into, in 2017, it was ICOs. Uh, in 2020, it was DeFi. Uh, 2021 it was nfts um mm-hmm. and uh and then and then that keeps pushing out on the risk spectrum until until the until the cycle is, is over and uh, if you look at what's <laughs> going to happen next year right bitcoin spot etfs bitcoin having a presidential election right that could very well lead into like if the the number one way is for the way for the dems to stay in power you turn the money printer back on um i know they don't have direct control over that obviously but you know it seems like those kind of different parties of the US political system are kind of converging, it does feel like sometimes. So, I mean, like, I don't know, tough to be bearish Bitcoin right now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm certainly not bearish Bitcoin. I think there's a, a lot of positive developments. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, you know, just as an aside, you know, it's, we had uh, Muneeb from Stacks here on the pod and talking about ordinals and whatnot. I mean, I, I saw a note out there that ordinal activities just got like cratered. Um, and so a lot, a lot of hype just has gone away. I don't know. I think it would be interesting to have someone uh, in the pod just follow up on that point that I know, uh, <clears throat> what's his name? Um, Uri has been very vocal around the lack of, like the the lack of like innovation amongst core Bitcoin developers. And like a historic, I mean, historically there's been a resistance to kind of out innovate uh, and just being critical of other experiments like Ethereum and then everything else. Um, Ordinals felt like it was sort of a sea change in terms of uh, maybe an inflection point of saying, okay, well, let's let's capitalize on this. Let's innovate. Let's create kind of layer two smart contracts, you know, whatever it is to, to create like DeFi thriving ecosystem in Bitcoin. I mean, it is probably will be in the foreseeable future, just the largest the largest um, coin, the, I mean, the largest uh, digital asset. And so there's a lot there that you can do. And so anyways, I'm, I'd just be really curious to to keep track on the, I, I haven't, I just saw that Ornold's like, just like 
went to zero again. Yeah. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute, but before we do that, I wanna let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year, it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, App Chain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right, Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team. You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to Permissionless, hit me up, let me know, shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. Uh, let's talk about one more win in the courts, which was Uniswap. Yeah. And then we can move on to the coin, uh, Brian's kind of like 10 things that he would invest in. So if you remember back in, uh, uh, there was this original complaint last year uh, that alleged that Uniswap, um, I think it was Uniswap and their founder, Hayden Adams, and Andreessen Horowitz and Paradigm were responsible for rampant fraud on Uniswap. And they pushed Uniswap to register uh, with the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Uh, plaintiffs also alleged that Uniswap offered and sold unregistered securities. It would have been really bad if they won this. They, uh, The court just concluded that um, this is that I think they basically just lost the 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 uniswap just won this basically um and i think the court said that even though they see merits in the defendant's counterpoint uh that this case is more like an effort to hold a developer of a self-driving car liable for a third party's use of the car to commit a traffic violation or to rob a bank which is basically saying that uh the uniswap protocol is primarily lawful has primarily lawful use and that protocol devs are not liable when others misuse it um, which is actually really interesting as you know, we were talking about this last week or the week before with, uh, um, who's the guy who just went to jail Roman, right? Um, yeah, the tornado, um, yeah, with cat tornado. Cat. So I think the trend in the courts is kind of turning here. Um, and it's really positive for hopefully this ends up applying to tornado and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's been like a, a fear that there'd be like a bad legal imp interpretation of what protocols really are. And it's, I don't know. It's motivating right. for, for builders to see this, uh, to see them get this one Absolutely. right. Yeah. You know, we said it time and time again, you have to believe that the courts will fairly interpret the law and the intent of, uh, you know, the law and, 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 and so and peel back a lot of the kind of the bullying that has happened and overreach arguably. So it's very positive. Uh, as an aside, there was a NFT project that was slapped <clears throat> by like, promising you know as a deems of security and um this is uh forget the name of the project but uh you know i i think that there's uh one i mean i think a few of the nft groups i'm on were a bit you know 
panicking over it. But if you look clearly at the complaint and like the, think at the SEC document, I mean, it was a fair amount of very aggressive language from these promoters of NFTs and developers, if you will. So this is an important just point that I want to make, which is, yeah, we're seeing a lot of positive developments in the courts. But I think because we don't have clarity, like like rules in place, one, if you're a hopefully if you're a developer, you you have some optimism here, but still consult with lawyer. And there's still like I think at this point there's been precedent, particularly coming out of the ICO phase, where there's like certain things that a lawyer would tell you very clearly, hey this is not something you should be doing. These are kind of the, as, as we know it, and based on precedent, these are kind of the things that the path that you could follow here reasonably and, and hope that you were on the right side, right. As many other projects, including Uniswap. Right. So anyways, it's important to, to make the distinction that there, there is still fraud happening. There's still obviously a lot of nefarious activity out there, but you know, through rulemaking, you kind of, are more able to focus on going after people that are, you know, um, committing fraud and violating the law, but you don't have these laws in place. And so anyways, just want to make that point because, you know, for, for maybe a skeptic listening, say, Oh, you crypto bulls, you know, you think that the game's over. Like, no, there's still a lot of fraud as there is in any industry, right. In any market. But I think your ability to, to, to enforce and to protect consumers increases dramatically when you actually have clear rules. Yeah. And, and so that's what we're trying. That's what we're excited here because we haven't had clarity in the last since day one. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's talk about uh, non-regulation. So this week, uh, a couple yes. of days ago, Brian Armstrong, founder and CEO of Coinbase, shared uh, the 10 things that he's most excited about in crypto. And adding a bit of context saying, look, if I was uh, I'm running Coinbase, so I can't go build these things. And Coinbase is big, but we're not, you know, we got to stay focused. We can't go build all these separate things. So if I was starting over today and I wanted to go build and found something in crypto, here's what I would go build today. I'm going to read off the 10 things that uh, kind of his crypto wish list, things that he would go build. One, fl- a flat coin. We'll talk about all these in a sec. One, a flat coin. So this coin that tracks the price of CPI. Two, on-chain reputation system. Three, on-chain ads. Uh, you weren't on this, but we just recorded an episode with Antonio of Spindle. Um, yep. Helped build Facebook's ad marketplace. Uh, really interesting on-chain ad conversation. Four, on-chain capital formation. Five, a job or a task marketplace. Kind of like a you know Fiverr or Upwork or something like that on-chain. Six, privacy for L2. Seven, P2P exchange fully on-chain. Eight, more on-chain games. Nine, tokenizing real-world assets. Ten, tools for network states. I'm curious, when you read through this and you watched this kind of presentation, what were the kind of uh, either end of the spectrum, the most exciting, no-brainer, if it was the right founder, I'd back that in a heartbeat. And then the flip side of like, ooh, yeah, I know it's Brian Armstrong, but like that that one, I don't, I don't know about that one. Tools for nation states is interesting, aggressive though. Like I read Bology's nation states, like yeah. I get his point. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that felt like a stretch. Um, and, and so it reminds me of like Dow tooling solutions, which that's what I thought of Dow tooling. I was like, yeah, I, exactly. I don't want to focus on that. It's just like the things that I get most excited about. And I spoke with Jesse from, from base and the Coinbase team about this is having on-chain reputation. 
is I think it's a lowest hanging fruit I think we have at this point, particularly if you deploy through base. Like Coinbase has over 100 million users. Like they have data on all of them. And they've done their checks. <clears throat> they could very easily issue you an NFT that says you're a registered user. You know, you, you've passed KYC AML, which you could argue is not efficient, whatever. But at least it's, it's that. It's not a bot. It's not. And so it's a real human being. And so I think that's the, I mean, if I'm Coinbase, like they should just deploy it themselves. There's a, an interesting project backed by like, I think they invested in it with Variant leading called, oh, what's the name of it? Like Sesame or something, which is basically like an NFT that attests to like real worldness and human mm. liveliness, if you will. Uh, but reputation score is, hugely important i think it's gonna happen sooner than later i want to say privacy as a second but as someone that has been around for a while like privacy is that cult like it's like zero knowledge proofs it's it's it is a holy grail right he did say something in the in the in the uh video that i actually don't agree with he said um privacy should be opt-in not like not opt out, meaning mm-hmm. you should designate which things you want private and not. And I think there are that just doesn't work because if everyone by default is not private, the people that are doing and electing to be private raises suspicion. And this happened with um, shielding, like Zcash uh, for for forever had this uh, like opt in, not opt out. And very few transactions were actually shielded, meaning private. My understanding is if you had done that, you would have gotten a call from the government. Almost like you would have gotten like inspected. And I know a few funds that did this. Um, And then that, I think, then Zcash went through and did an upgrade of doing all trans. For context, Zcash is a privacy preserve, like a privacy first coin, like layer one, if you will. Um, But once they did an upgrade, every transaction was by default private. And I think that's what you need to have um, in order for, you know, the system to, to actually work. But uh, on the scale of how, like being practical, like how is that, that going to happen? I mean, I know zero, there's been a lot of work and progress in zero, zero knowledge proofs, but I think we're still a ways away from, from having, um, from having like, true privacy on chain um so so those two important i think are would be huge the implications going back to reputation um can't be like understated because that would increase efficiency in DeFi. that would allow for think of um permission DeFi environment where you're still settling on an L1 like Ethereum, right? And you still have that guarantee, but you know who your counterparty is. You can you can go and talk to a lot of large financial institutions and they would most likely get more comfortable of interacting on chain, the visas, the JP Morgans of the world. To, to use something like Ethereum and use a an AMM like Uniswap, but an implementation or, or a lending, a money market like Aave or Compound, 
where you know everyone, where everyone's a verified user and has some sort of reputation score, i.e. credit score plus, right? Now, mind you, that that I think is where DeFi is really going. That's what I'm really excited about. I just backed an L2 that is very focused on this um, because I think this is the path forward to, to getting a lot of like well, the traditional yeah. system yeah. on chain. Yeah. So those are the the main two. The third one that I just want to touch on, and I want to hand it over to you, is is marketing. And I've said it before. It, 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 just today, actually, there was a, a a company that was backed by Kindred Ventures, and there was a lot Gill and a bunch of other folks like backed it. I think it raised four point three million to, uh, I think presumably like focus on this segment of the market, which is, um. As more and more non-speculative pure use cases emerge, like Jesse from Base was talking about, like you know having like an open table on chain where on Base where once, which I think is the point where you as soon as you go to a restaurant, you check in, you get an NFT, um, and like there's some sort of reward system in place, and you can pay with a stable coin. So a lot of these things start clicking, right? Um, that very easily lends itself to marketing and a whole ad network behind it. Um, and referral programs, uh, right? Which I think some crypto native projects and DeFi have done this. Like Urine, for instance, has referral programs like a wallet like Argent. If Argent funnels money to a Urine vault, there's a the smart contract detects that. And so there's a commission paid out based on the fee. All of that is going to be a massive, massive industry, particularly when you think about the challenges of cookies in Web2, yeah. which have basically... And some jurisdictions like Europe have like been heavily impacted. Uh, not only that, but it's like blockchains are transparent if you don't have privacy. And if you have, if you issue an NFT to someone, when they walk into your store, they go to your restaurant, they fly, whatever. Um, and the NFT just commemorates that activity. Well, all of a sudden you have access to all that information in the wallet. And if you're a brand, like your ability to target and stitch together maybe Web2 data or Web3 data is, is a huge advantage. And any marketer <clears throat> that is looking at this and appreciates that, I think, just jumps out of his seat and says, wow, th this, is the, this is the next, this is what the next wave of marketing looks like. Mm. Right. And, and I don't know, th those were the things that um, I was mostly excited about. Um, I think all of them made sense, but these three were, again, <clears throat> the reputation, privacy and and marketing, like a, a marketing, like a ad network, if you will. The marketing and reputation, practically speaking, can be deployed and I think can work like today. Reputation, like privacy is something that we've been working on as an industry for a long time. And so it will come. I think it's just going to farther out in the spectrum. Yeah. What do you think? I agree with you. I liked all these ideas, honestly. I thought they were all pretty good. Um, there were, I could, I've like, I wrote, I tried to force myself to write down one pushback for every single one so I can go through okay. through those if That's you think it's interesting. But, um, but the, just to start with the ones that I liked, I, so on-chain ads are a no-brainer. Basically, web one, we had CPMs. Web two, we moved to CPC, cost per click, right? So initially, Web one, you pay for the impressions. Web two, you pay for for the clicks, right? Web three, and this is as someone who's a lot of our revenue comes from advertising. Um, it's nearly impossible to do this in 
the traditional kind of software stack that that you know web2 has right now and that we're built on top of is going from cpm to cpc all the way to cpa which is you only pay someone when they buy something or take an action on chain CPA, so, just for listeners cost per action cost per ac- action exactly so we've gone from cost per milli which is fancy way of saying a thousand to cost per click um, which is like how Facebook and Instagram work too. In, in in crypto, you can go to CPA. And what's even cooler about that is it's not just uh, uh, paying out the person at the bottom of that stack. You pay out along the entire stack. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Like, um, you know, the, so the advertiser of these, this episode, um, uh, the, like let's say you have an advertiser for this episode and uh, we, we drive you. you, you hear the advertisement and, uh, you're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. You go to Google, right? You go to Google, you type in that, that advertiser's name, you then submit a form on their page. We as Blockworks don't get credit for that. They have no idea that we sent you because they went to Google and clicked on that. But if a lot of that is happening on chain, um, not the podcast, obviously podcasts aren't on chain right now, but like if that kind of action, like you go here, then you go here, then you go here and that's all on chain. That is a, you could basically pay out all series of the, of the funnel there. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I actually think the job task on this point, like it increases dramatically increases transparency and marketing. There's a famous saying, right? Because marketing works. You just don't know. You just don't know it's working on you. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is the glass half full or not. Like it's like in understanding the funnel behavior and user behavior is impossible. So brands have oh, oh you're talking about half my advertising spend is wasted. The trouble yeah, is exactly. I just don't, but I you just, just don't know which half. I just don't know yeah. which one half. Yeah. And the, the problem is that. Yeah, John you know, Wanamaker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And so like even and the and the problem is even worse, right? If you if you go to Amazon, they don't share the data with you. And so a lot of that transparency of the funnel and how users find you and how they interact with your brand and I mean, and the conversion of that is in, in the checkout of that, like everything in the funnel from discovery to checkout will be dramatically like see dramatic improvements because of crypto um, and, and not just paying through stable coins, but, but even farther up the funnel, just to discovering the trackability of that with tools like NFTs is, is just going to be huge. Yeah. So I, I like my bet on crypto has always been that the world's becoming more global and more digital and crypto is the easiest bet on that. Like if you, if you try to like take out all the kind of anti-institution things and kind of the, the libertarian in me, like if you're making a simple bet and you're explaining it to a simple person, the world's getting more global and more digital. This is a bet on that. And I think some of Brian's things really hit on that. Like the job task marketplace for crypto, there are like a fiver. But, you know, yeah. the stable coins layered in and, and again, but, everything, but everything ties into reputation. I mean, uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I do. That has to come later though. That's not, uh, you need people doing things on chain first, then you can build a reputation system. You can't build a reputation right. system. if So you have to pull people. Well, in well you, you can port, you, you can port web two data and through like, of course you, you'd have to. Argue I'm that just that bearish on things that rely on that rely on like that's why like real world assets is like man i hope it works but like you're relying on a on a non-digital thing um so i'm i I don't love like hey we need to build credit scores on chain like let's go pull in from credit karma um 
So it's, I mean, it's you can an kickstart a network like that, but. Yeah. I think they're you, you kickstarted that way, and then and then the percentage and weight in the in the algorithm to predict credit worthiness or some other some other measure of reputation, the percentage of on chain activity can be very quickly the dominant the dominant weight in in the model. But I wouldn't be dismissive of porting Web two data into the mix now. Places like the U.S. have a lot, like have, yeah, better systems and data feeds than other places. Just don't have it, right? Where you have informal economy, like in India. Well, it's it's challenged. Yeah, but um, but it's not impossible. I mean, when you say like th there's a startup, for instance, that started lending out, um, started you know creating a like a micro micro loans, like a like Grameen Bank in Africa. And they were using like smart smartphone activity. If you're charging your phone, the type of apps that you have, if you're paying your mobile uh, consumption in time, like those sort of things are arguably better predictors of credit worthiness than like experience, like your typical credit score. But anyways, an aside. The, the, just a like last point on this one, the like job yeah. task marketplace. If I told you that there was a market that was growing 71% year over year, it's completely global. Um, and it's, uh, the buyer on the other side is not consumers. It's, it's businesses. Like, I think that's exciting to anyone. And that's, that's the freelance job market today. So like freelance. Is that Fiverr? Like what's wrong uh, with Fiverr? Have you ever used Fiverr? Yeah. Oh, I, I I've tried. Fiverr, Fiverr, Fiverr sucks. I actually use, up, I, <laughs> up, I use Upwork sometimes. Um, Sorry, up, yeah, Upwork, Fiverr. Like these I use Upwork for like weird miscellaneous. I mean, I actually don't really use it anymore. I, I use it for um uh, now like uh, Claude.ai has taken that. Um, okay. I, and I use that instead of Upwork. But I don't know, the, the like freelance marketplace, the freelance just industry is growing and market is growing so, so, so fast. Um, mm -hmm. And most of these platforms are, are not that good. Whether that's like a crypto thing or Web2 thing, maybe it's just, it's really tough to build yeah. one of those marketplaces. Well, but, let me um, ask you a question. Like if, if you're, if you're the Upwork management listening to this, what could you do? And maybe it's just accepting stable coins. Like what else... What else would you layer on in terms of crypto nativeness that Upwork is missing is what I'm trying to understand. I, th I think the payments in, in Brian. Yeah, I, I see your point. The, the payments is just huge, right? Because <clears throat> there's always a cut, the interchange fee, like the, the commissions, like the, the processing, the settlement, all of that backend is hugely inefficient. You could just use a stable coin. And pay with USDC, USDT, whatever. You know, I think that's that's something that that should be done. Yeah. And then, particularly for the talent that lives in places where it's difficult to have a bank account, or it's difficult to, you know, have a local banking network, like all that stuff, just poof, like you don't yeah. need it. Reputation is important. The verification of that and the quality of the work. I mean, I think there's always, look, there's bots in crypto. And so <clears throat> I think pr proving proof of humanity, proof of work are important concepts in crypto that we've had to deal with. I think the proof of work aspect is is there for machines, but not so much necessarily for humans. Like DAOs have struggled a bit in, in, in like grading the reputation of contributors. Um, 
you could look at Gitcoin and say, okay, this is an interesting grants program. A lot of the same, a lot of the grants are doled out to the same recipients that, you know, over time have produced like quality work. And so there's, there's some data there that is useful and interesting. Um, you always have the issue when it comes to reputation around, like, <clears throat> there is this dynamic of when you read reviews, a lot of them are dissatisfied customers that take the that, that take the time and effort to actually write a review. So it's skewed on the negatives. And it's, that's a problem with some, some sort of, when you look at reviews, a lot of the activity on Twitter too is negative, skewed negative. Like it's, it's just very vocal minority that expresses dissatisfaction and anger and all those range of emotions, particularly in bear markets. But yeah, the, the, it's challenging. Like, I think as, as we think about like non-speculative use cases, like, like these, I think I always wonder like, why hasn't it been possible in web two? Could you introduce certain things in, in a web two business model? Or do you have to totally reinvent it from scratch? And this is not just for job markets It's really for everything. Um, and, and I think, it's an interesting exercise to go through like banks. You could argue they don't have to blow up, right? They could just use on chain to do settlement, which is huge, like, or to do process, like to expand their market and reduce uh, overhead from compliance and operations and streamline all of that. That's a huge material impact that I think um, their ability that then allows them to cover more market, extend more loans, do whatnot, but I think that the, the linchpin there is reputation. Yeah, and the problem yeah, the one that's that probably going to have the biggest impact. Have. Probably, the, honestly, the one out of all of these that would have the biggest impact is the flat coin. The I flat just think coin. I just think it's Apple also the hardest to do. Sorts. Right? Like, do you know how many? You know how much um, money has gone into this trying to do it? And like, what? What? And I think the challenge here is, so flat coin is one that tracks inflation accurately, right? Some sort of, yeah, purchasing power inflation. Yeah. I mean, first off, how do you get that economic data into? How well like, the calculation like of that CPI, has just been morphed. CPI, like CPI they, how many times have they changed the definition of CPI? Yeah, CPI is a completely broken metric. So, like, are you tracking CPI? No, you can't track CPI because that doesn't accurately track. Um, uh, you know, the you track the price inflation. of Costco hot dog soda combo or pizza. Yeah, because that stays soda flat. Combo. That stays flat. No, yeah. it's a one to dollar. It's a dollar fifty now. It's not a dollar anymore. Have you read the quote, Jim Senegal, the Costco co-founder? You know what he once told the company's current CEO, Craig Jelinek? If you raise the effing hot dog, I will kill you. <laughs> Figure it out. And then another quote, I think a journalist asked him, when is uh, when is the price of the hot dog going to go going to increase in price past 150? He goes, when I'm dead. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, okay, the, the Big Mac index. Yeah, no, I know well, what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying. But uh, it's challenging. Obviously, there's ample forth, which uh, I looked at. I, I just never invested. I, it was just really it's just big. hard. Yeah. There's just been a lot of yeah, a lot of these, right? You have to track real real world inflation, but then it's like, well, where's real world inflation coming from? And then it's like, do you create one of these for every country, or do you are you just doing it off the U.S. dollar? Because like, infl inflation against what you know? Yeah, so. yeah. No, certainly. I mean, there's like deflation in China. There's 300% inflation, 600% inflation in certain places. Um, so yeah, it is it is challenged. Um, I do agree with you. It is kind of this unsolved holy grail in crypto privacy and having a 
stablecoin that is not tied to fiat is is I think the most perhaps two of the most ambitious things that we can work on uh, on a truly digitally native like global system that you know, transcends feel, yeah. jurisdictions. The one that feels the most accomplishable. Why is a um why is a P2P exchange a fully on chain P2P exchange so hard? I'm sure it's very hard from an engineering perspective. You know, it's probably the incentives are broken for that. Because if you want to go build an exchange, the market, the market's not going to reward you for it. Um, I mean, for, for uh, building he a mentions that he exchange. doesn't. Okay, an AMM. What's an AMM? An automatic market maker like Uniswap or a money market like Aave and Compound. Now, I think it's not strictly peer-to-peer -peer because you don't necessarily know the peer. You're trading against the pool. So it's an aggregation. But I would say that to me is maybe that's what, where we land because matching, like what was that company that, that went public um, that did loans, like peer-to-peer -peer loans? Uh, what was the name of it? I don't know. Based in San Francisco, I got a buddy of mine that ended up leaving JP Morgan to work there. Um, but like Prosper, well, Prosper didn't go public. I think you had Prosper and then another company. And at some point in that assembly line of, of matching an ind independent borrower, like they acted as an intermediary to dish out those, those um, loans. Initially, they started purely peer-to-peer, -peer, but over time, they morphed into something like what is now a pool, which is they would, they would as soon as they got scale, they pre they package all of those loans and then they sold it off to a hedge fund. In a low like interest rate environment, that model was fabulous for a hedge fund to to capture meaningful yield. Um, the problem was adverse selection and the people that were using were like you couldn't get a typical loan, so then they they were much riskier people, and so anyways. The scale of peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces is always hard. I would say I'm, I'm content with the hybrid model, if you will, of what I consider to be a, a, a good balanced way of these marketplaces, which is an AMM and a money market that you see in DeFi on chain. Like that to me is a huge novelty and, and I think it's great. I mean, I, I don't like what else would you want to see in the peer like a P2P exchange? Like what what activity in the economy would would uh, suddenly jump uh, 10x because you had an on-chain P2P exchange? I just don't see it. Like, you know what I mean? Like what what would it be? It's I mean, it's probably something that you can't see. It's probably an emerging in less developed markets, right? True. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Um, the th the thing about that that we haven't touched on a lot is this real world assets, which is, in some ways, a, a P two P exchange. Um, if you're not trading like an NFT, like a digital thing, it's a physical thing, and that's a real world asset. And so, you don't have a reputation score. Who's going to be the oracle? Who's going to enforce that? These are all questions that I have, which is when you think about marketplaces for stuff like an eBay yeah. or an Amazon. Like, I mean, it's tough, right? Because you have real world, like 
atoms meet bits. It's it's complicated, like with with real world assets, right? I mean, I think with real world assets, most people are excited about, you know, having institution A trade with institution B on chain, or institution A say a company has a huge amount of accounts receivable, they want to put that on the blockchain, and then you know someone syndicates that, someone sells that, like. That feels more doable than um, a, a, a Craigslist sort of Amazon marketplace on chain. Like, uh, I don't see it. Yeah. Maybe Amazon and all these web, again, I'm saying most of these marketplaces would be benefited in the amount of activity, less fraud. Faster checkout if you had stablecoins. If they allowed stablecoins. Yeah. Which by the way is stablecoins are the best example of real world assets that we have, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean they're they're regulated. There's a dollar that sits in a bank account, like a USDC, like Paxos, whatever. Um it's gonna happen. It's already happening. And I think um the web two brands that all of them have 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 struggled with denying certain customers from certain places. The credit cards uh, get rejected for simple reasons, like because the credit card is in a country that I don't know, it's whatever Nigeria or whatever. Doesn't mean that all of yeah. the transactions are fraudulent. It's just there there have been ch- attempts from Stripe and Shopify and all these players to reduce the the false what is it, the false positives. Um and do faster checkout, which is a huge problem. So, anyways, um, churn right. If you're a SaaS company, a software company, or or a news, whatever type of subscription that is happening, I can't like the amount of uh, renewals that don't happen because that underlying customer changes payment information and doesn't. It's just like, like it's so obvious that. When you have a smart contract and account abstraction, like all that is billions of dollars that have that have just are left on the table. It's the lowest hanging fruit. Payments is an area that when you first come to crypto, at least for me, was like it was only Bitcoin. And so you said, wow, this could be a really interesting medium of exchange. And then you realize, no, you know what? I don't want to spend my Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, playing poker nights. And yeah, remember all the e-commerce BPC. attempts back in 2018 failed because people, no one wants to spend their Bitcoin and then no one wants to spend their ETH. So Bitcoin is not money because it's not a medium of exchange. It's not a very good one, I think. Yeah. But stablecoins are. Yeah. They are. So, Santi, man, good pod. I have a final round interview in one minute. So, oh wow, you're hiring a lot. You're hiring, right? Sales and engineers, salespeople and engineers, get at us. Slide through the DMs. Is this for the research product? Whole company. We got. We're hiring. Uh, hiring one engineer for the editorial site, and then a bunch of folks on the uh, for the research, <laughs> governance, and uh, other thing. We're launching in two weeks at Permissionless. And oh. Then, uh, yeah, and then uh, we got it. We're hiring for sales across the board. So, very nice. And just to say one thing, I've re become a subscriber again of YouTube Premium. I think they didn't allow it in your. I don't know. Huge game changer. Same. Like I love it. I, I am now consuming so many videos. Like I was driving to like 
eight hours or seven hours. I just played pretty much every interview from like Bill Ackman, Seth Klarman, like Howard Marks. So I was just like, and then constantly, it was just amazing. It's like, an, it's, it's huge. I mean, education is going to be, YouTube is the best university in the world. It is crazy. Uh, YouTube premium is a good, good investment. What, 10, 15 bucks? Uh, Get the it, ad. It, you can download good, it too for planes. Yes, yeah. for, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Anyways, that, that was, I've been hooked, hooked on YouTube premium now. I'm, I'll make streaming all day. So that's my generalized thing that I video or book. Nice. What have you done? Uh, anything, anything noteworthy on your side? Um, no, no, I've been, like, <laughs> I've been focused sh- on permission. Watching, I've been watching hard knocks, the football show. I've been like needing to turn my brain. I've been working too much and uh, trying to turn my brain off at the end of the day. So I've been watching hard knocks. Not bad. Yeah. All right, folks. Hopefully we didn't give you brain pain in this episode. Um, leave a comment. I am reading them. Uh, more people commented last week. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now that I'm YouTube premium, I'm, of course you know that I'm going to be reading them. Drop us a comment if you want us to talk about a particular thing or not. Otherwise, right, we're going to kick off the next episode, the next roundup. We're going to read some of the, the we're going to read some of the yes. best comments. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of the week, weekend. We'll see you here next week before the last one before the big, big day permissionless. Let's go. See you guys next week. Let's go.